Hello, and welcome to Writers Radio. Ariane Lee Johnston is the author of The Geography of Belonging, a love story of horses in Africa, whose second edition came out in May 2023 with Salmonberry Arts and Publishing. This memoir tells the remarkable and courageous story of how Oriane was drawn to the Mavura Donna Mountains in Zimbabwe. Before becoming a writer, in her early 50s, Oriane took up natural horse riding. For 10 years, she was also the program director of Hollyhock Retreat Center on Cortez Island, British Columbia, Canada, where she still makes her home. Her love story extends to a country and as well as to horses, to an African horseman, Stephen Hambani. Did you ride horses as a, as a child? Well, I hadn't ridden horses as a child, except for being sent to summer camp and having the horse run away and scare me for the rest of my life. Then when I was in my early 50s, I went on holidays with my then partner to Costa Rica and went horseback riding for a day. And something happened in riding from the cloud forest down to the beach over the course of a day. And then I went the next day and I got home to Cortez. And then when the summer came, there was one person who teaches riding and it just grabbed a hold of me at that you know something happens around that time of life some passion comes forth that was formerly unknown and I didn't know that she taught natural horsemanship which is about partnering with a horse as if you're another horse and people call it horse whispering but it's not it's horse listening you do refer to Stephen as a horse wrangler well, in that section in the story, when I say horse wrangler, it's a kind of tongue in cheek because I'm trying to come up with a term because in Zimbabwe, he's called a groom, our head groom, which is so colonially condescending for someone who's responsible for people's lives in the wilderness and who can ride a horse without hands at any pace, who's extraordinary. Why Africa? Once I've come to be a part of horses' world and they're part of mine, and I lie down in that field and have this strong sense, even a voice saying, go lie your body on Africa. Um, at that time, I had just thought I'd always like to go to Africa. But when I was in elementary school, I would have a recurring nightmare about being in the upstairs of the school, and there would be this thunderous noise. You'd think it was a herd of wildebeest across the plain or something like that. I would be frightened out of my wits because it was the classic Tarzan <laughs> image of Africans pounding into the school and up the steps to get me. When I was the program director for Hollyhock at the very beginning, we brought to Hollyhock Baba Tunde Olatunji, who was the first cultural ambassador to come from Africa. He came from Nigeria to the States and 
was called by the powers to come and bring one heart to the world. And he did that. And that very first time he came, I did the program at that time. My son, who was seven or eight, did the program. A lot of us did the program. And he brought a young couple with him that drummed and danced. They bought property here and moved here. So we had an African drumming group with no Africans in it because Baba lived in New York for 10 years. And we would play locally and on Vancouver Island. And it was about being captured by the, the spirit of the drum. Well, your writing is incredibly embodied. That notion of horse and rider is just one fluid movement. And your description, so were you a botanist? I haven't been a botanist or even considered myself a plant person particularly. It's kind of embarrassing now, even this morning going for a walk with a friend from somewhere else is this a hemlock tree or a spruce tree or a fir tree? And the names don't stay in my mind. So through the story, I would ask at the time, what is the name of this plant? But Ingrid, it's simply the, the, the power of observation. Because you simply, as a photographer would, or a, a painter, describe what, what you see. Yes. And then what's the internalized experience of that? As a writer, because obviously you really enjoy language, tell me a little bit about your process, your development as a writer. Let's start with in terms of this book. Um, I had been keeping field notes. It was just important to keep track of everything so that I would remember it. And then Canadian Horse magazine got wind of my African safaris and asked me to write a story, my African safaris. So I wrote the story. I had no idea if the writing was up to any kind of even magazine standard. So I called on a friend who's a, a poet in, in Victoria, Cynthia Woodman Kirkham. Her published book of poetry is about Earth, so we have a, a similar sensibility and asked her, how did I do? And so we began to tweak it. In this book, Course of Writing the Book, we worked on it. I would do sections and send them to her. I learned so much about writing, the grammatical aspects of it, but also how to write. Ariane Lee Johnston now reads from The Geography of Belonging, a love story of horses in Africa, where she's at Sia Lima Farm, the gateway to the Mavuradonna wilderness, and will be led there by Douglas Chinamo, the wilderness guy. After months of preparation, both practical and prayerful, I am in Africa again, in anticipation of entering the Mavuradonna mountain wilderness. And now, the moment I've waited for, horses saddled and ready, I'm putting on the full-length fringed suede chaps, my friend Mary's gift, that have held the promise of riding in Africa again. Marvin Mutangara, 
Douglas Chinamo and Pension Yamare, and I are going to Copy Top's bush camp today with kit and gear for the month. Douglas is ready on the spunky gelding gizmet and trails Skanky by her lead rope. Skanky is a spirited young paint mare, white and sorrel, given the job of pack horse today as part of her training in the trustworthy composure needed on the trail with riders aboard. Pension, tall and lanky, is on foot beside Skanky. His kitchen supplies are stowed in her saddlebags. Marvin is on steady Basara and trails a beautifully conformed young Palomino mare who is just starting her training in the bush. Her name is Jecha, the Shona word for sand. From the wood bench seat that doubles as a mounting block, I swing into the saddle on moonlight. Fifteen-hand gray mare, who initially checks me out with a tentative buck or two when I ask her to move ahead. Does this woman know what she's doing? The red dirt roadway beyond the farm has been recently bulldozed wide and flat for the gigantic yellow dump trucks that transport mineral-laden earth to the mine processing plant visible on the horizon a few kilometers away. Marvin points to a low mountain some distance behind the farm. Strip mining just over that hill, he says. That's the urgency for getting Maviradona Wilderness better protected by securing status as a national heritage site. When dust clouds foretell the looming approach of the frightfully driven truck, we pull neckerchiefs over our noses and mouths and head immediately into the roadside vegetation, facing the horses away from the road to spare them the brunt of the dust. It's a short, 30-minute ride to the trail ahead, but the way feels treacherous, not only because of the road hazard, but also because of the far-reaching implications for once-intact environments all over Africa. After crossing a stone bridge over shallow running water, Douglas guides Gizmet off to the right, into the stall, tall, bushy border, and the rest of us follow single file. A path of flattened grass opens up, and once off the road, the unsettling realities of the mining vanish. The pathway, animal and human-made, traverses gradually rising slopes of miombo-treed woodland. This is the single entranceway to the wilderness region and to the Mavuradona Mountains much further north. Our moving line of five horses and four humans slows as the path underfoot narrows and a head-high stand of grass obscures both the ground and the distant view. Each stalk of amber-colored grass is rose-tinged at the tip, a blush that brushes our temples as the horses glide us through. I expect a few hours of riding before we'll reach the Raffia Palms Botanical Reserve. They told me the reserve has a distinguished reputation in the world of plant biology, an unblemished ecosystem alongside the Tingwa River. The immense fronds of the Raffia farinifera palm tree are by far the biggest leaves in the plant kingdom, up to 18 meters tall. Douglas eventually slows his horse at the crest of a low rise, allowing the rest of us to fall in beside him, the grass just skimming our thighs. He points to a posse of zebras running helter-skelter up the far hillside. 
In just a few seconds, the shiny stripes disappear, camouflaged by a canopy of trees. Then I see it, a clearing about the size of a soccer field, coming so unexpectedly upon the beauty of the botanical reserve sweeps me away. I feel small, as if the shiny peel of a giant ambrosia apple with its scarlet, yellow, russet, and green is spread over the landscape, a mantle of deep and glowing variegated color. In the distance, the huge skyward fronds of the raffia palm trees at the river's edge appear molten, reflecting a silvery rather than a golden light. Moonlight lowers her head and blows out through her nose. She follows Douglas and Gizmet's meandering lead toward the river. The silky brocade of tall grass in the meadow surrounding us ripples gently, handprints of wind. The low river burbles and sparkles over rocks. The illusion of liquid light on the palm fronds melts away as we pass underneath them. A world of unfiltered perception opens to me. The next day. Good morning in Shona. Mangwanani means tomorrow is here. I wonder upon waking, seeing Gizmet and Jetcha in the horse paddock beyond my window, what is the wisdom to be learned with this herd in Mavuradana? Going to meet Douglas and his camp groom Clements to tend the horses before breakfast, it's delightful to be able to say, Mangwanani Shamwares. Good morning, friends. Later, I saddle Moonlight to ride out with Douglas and Clemens. I discover a welcome simplicity in being with the two of them. Our silence lets the mind down gently, and my usually overt curiosity disappears. I just listen. The familiar rustle of grass on our horse's legs. The conversation of the trees with the wind. Of the cloud shadows with the cliffs they scan and the bees dusting the voluptuous, creamy-colored protea blo blossoms. After we leave our horses tethered in the scrub brush with Clements, Douglas leads me high up a granite-strewn hill toward a vertical surface of rock that is set back under a massive overhang. A huge flat-top boulder, as if a platform, lies in front. As we get nearer, the atmosphere changes from the sentient woodlands to an uncanny sense of spaciousness, as if all persona and preconceptions have fallen away. Then, without any fanfare, we are standing on the boulder, face to face with the hand-drawn images of the iconic animals of Africa. Rock art, Douglas tells me, Paintings ten millennia old, 
the language of his ancestors, leaving messages for other hunters about where they have found certain animals for food and hides. Something minuscule moves. A living spider creeps across the long, curved horn of a sable antelope painted on the cliff. Something inside me moves, too. I feel a bit lightheaded and have to lie down on the boulder. When Douglas tells me the granite rock underneath us is more than a billion years old, I just let go. When I wake up, I can feel a distinct heartbeat, but more than my own. The boulder, the hill, the earth are pulsing in time with me, or I with them. I am them. Breathing is the same. A boundless, invisible presence breathes through me. With each inhale, I am filled with the whole universe. When I exhale, my breath disperses to the incalculable reaches of the cosmos. It is a page-turner. I was interested, I know you've talked about this. Were you going to leave the whole story of Stephen out of the book? <laughs> well, when I first started to write, I didn't think of myself as a memoir writer. I meant it to be a travelogue, here to there to here. And then I had a young friend, Erin Robinson, who also is a poet, she had heard the juiciness of the love story and said, you don't have a story without that aspect of it. And then when you were asking about my kind of saga of writing and learning to write, I took over the course of writing this book seven either writing or writing-related workshops at Hollyhock. And each of them were so helpful, different each in their own way. I can't imagine now the story with Stephen is so well braided into the, the larger story of Africa. You write about the complex issues. You were there and had that privilege through having an intimate relationship. I mean, not just with the horses. And clearly, you made a connection with a large number of people. Just having that ability sensibility to feel the heartbeat under you. You know, I think that's the value of doing something by yourself. I went alone. And so even though at the time in Mozambique, there were other volunteers. So that was a kind of an intro to everything. But by the time I got to Zimbabwe and went back the second year, it was me. And what we had in common was horses. You know, I have thought that because then I had the relationship with Stephen, I went behind the scenes in a way that I wouldn't have, or perhaps others haven't, even with a very close Black African woman friend. Of course, it's different, you know, that's how the title of the book came about, this, what is the geography, it's the body. Ariane Lee Johnston reads a second excerpt from her memoir, The Geography of Belonging, 
a love story of horses in Africa. For the first time, she goes to Stephen's village to meet his family as his fiancée. Hours later, after dark and beyond tiredness, the two of us walk the four remaining kilometers in the clear light of full moon on a pathway through an endless waist-high landscape of fluffy white cotton, ready for harvest, Stephen says. My flip-flops launch little bursts of sand with each step. I can feel every grain sliding down my bare legs underneath my ankle-length skirt. At long last, we arrive. What a relief to be together with Stephen, held in the warm setting of everyday life in Kumusha. Kumusha, the term for one's home village, the place where one's ancestors are buried, the place of belonging. Back in Harare at the guest house and stables where Stephen is a worker, weka in white English Zimbabwean, I am a client and never the twain should meet. Of course this is true in reputable hotels everywhere, but in this country, even after work hours, his role is subservient in white company. He addresses the horse owners as madam, the deferential term for white women still, though I notice his demeanor remains self-possessed. The contrast between that city's subservience and the reception he receives here in the village is stunning. In Kumusha, he holds the place of respected eldest man in the family, one regarded for his wisdom by the community. I am about to bypass all reason and purposely drink a jar of cloudy brown water. Or rather, I was waiting, as instructed, until the dirt settled to the bottom. Yes, please, this is for you. A little bit of soil in the water. Stephen's cousin rubs his fingers above the glass. The water has come not from a deep borehole, but from a surface well a short walking distance away in the midst of all these people. When you drink this, the earth will recognize you, his cousin says, and you will not get sick from eating or drinking anything in Kamusha. I could almost hear my mother, a registered nurse, in her alarmed caution, Have you lost your mind? I did not think so. It sounded like a homeopathic prophylactic to me. A microdose of immunization. Sipping from the rim of the jar over the next hour, I ponder the consequences. This liaison with Stephen is such a mystery, compelling with an unforeseeable future. But then, that is true of beginnings. One thing is certain. I am letting go of any familiar reckoning about suitable men. Stephen's appearance and his treatment by the urban white world do not convey the kindness, patience, and strength of this man I am getting to know. We sleep in the only bed, single-sized, usually occupied by Diana with several little granddaughters in the mud-walled Imba. I asked Stephen for the Shona word because hut just seems too cliché and impersonal. Imba, an abiding place, an abode, a place or means of lodgment, a fixed shelter, plural, Zimba. 
there appears to be room for everyone who needs a place in the Zimba of Musha. Africa, it it feels like a body. The way you describe the land, you know, those amazing grasses and how they actually touch you. You're on horseback, so you're high up, but still the land caresses you. And that's the beauty of either being on foot and or being on horseback is you're not in a vehicle. Vehicles were to get from place to place, but to be sleeping on the ground or out in the bush or in the village, you're simply in nature, lying on the heartbeat. You have just been listening to Orianne Lee Johnston, reading a second excerpt from her memoir, The Geography of Belonging, a love story of horses and Africa. I'm Ingrid Rose. I was your host for this Writer's Radio program. Many thanks to my co-producers, Carol Harmon and Gary Sill, who is also a music man. And thank you to you, our listeners. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays, and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishal Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship. Mm-hmm.